Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. We've been talking a lot the last two episodes about compassion, self-compassion for for parents. And Dr. Shafali was on last episode or actually two episodes ago talking about self-love. And I thought this would be a really good follow-up to talk about how to like foster self-compassion with our kids so that they can have that directly. So I invited Medina from NoCD on so we can have kind of a conversation. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. It's always good to have someone to talk to about this. So for those that don't know, NoCD is providing virtual therapy for people really all over the world now. I know it's in the UK. I heard Canada, which was really mm-hmm. exciting. Australia, and definitely all of the states in America. And I'm hearing a lot of my parents talk about being able to access therapy who haven't been able to access therapy for years. So that's very exciting. And you can go to treatmyocd.com to get your own 15 minute free consultation. I always think it's good to even maybe just get an assessment and see where your child is at. But if you can tell us a little bit before we jump into this topic today, like what you do for NoCD and a little bit about it. Yeah. So um, I do some clinical advising. So I'm helping train and onboard some of the therapists so we can give the best sort of ERP and treatment to OCD. And then obviously I'm doing some of the marketing stuff, whether it be the podcasts or the lives. And then I see members themselves, which is really exciting. Um, so I get to I get to wear a lot of hats, which is fun. Yeah, that is fun. And it's growing. So I'm sure you're seeing a lot of new clinicians coming in and learning and getting trained. So that's awesome. Yeah. So let's talk about self-compassion. And I know that we had talked and you you're a yoga instructor, you know, like mm-hmm. I, which I love that. I think that combination of mindfulness and like that whole like approach fits really well with the kids that we're working with. I think it's like a really good supplement, like an adjunct way of looking at things. I've noticed, and you can tell me what you noticed too, is a lot of kids with anxiety and OCD and my kids as well, really struggle with self-compassion and self-love, especially for those that have intrusive thoughts of like harming others or moral OCD where they're a bad person, but even kids just who have anxiety and OCD, what, what do you notice? Yeah, um, I totally agree. I think in general, kids and, and adults, I'm sure you see this as well. We struggle with self-compassion. I, I really see it as a safety-seeking behavior. I know that like with OCD, we talk a lot about how the compulsions are safety-seeking behaviors, but that criticism as well, I see as a safety-seeking behavior because for a few reasons, right? The first one is it's easier to kind of criticize ourselves before someone else gets the opportunity to do so. And it also gives us a sense of control, right? If I'm able to change this, this bad or horrible quote unquote thing about myself, then, then I have the control kind of, kind of to change that dynamic or storyline, I guess would be a good word to use. So yeah, I, I definitely see it commonly and I see it as such a safety seeking behavior. That's really interesting. What a, what an interesting perspective, you know, to, to see it as a safety seeking behavior. I, I think that's a good spin on it. You know, like, let me get, let me get to that before someone else does, or let me like kind of punish myself 
for this thought so that I can, it can almost even it out so that I can, you know, berate myself. Yeah. That that's a good point. Yeah. And and that's even what the research shows that we are the number one reason we're hard on ourselves is because we think it's going to help us motivate ourselves to change. But if you actually look at the research, the exact opposite happens. And so like, I'll say to my members all the time, like, Hey, can we be a little nicer through this process? Like we can recognize that, Hey, maybe this behavior isn't very helpful, but we don't have to be rude to ourselves about it because it's not actually going to bring about change. Yeah. So how, how can parents one spot that kind of behavior? Cause they may be missing it. I know so I'm in grief therapy right now because my husband passed away and oh, I'm sorry and to hear that. I know I talk about it every episode, so eventually I'll stop, but I've never been in therapy before, which is ironic. And so it's so weird to be on the opposite end of that. And even she will like catch me when I'm saying something and she'll say, can we rephrase that? Or can we use a different word than that? And I'm like, I'm like off put by it. Cause I'm like, first of all, I don't like to be like paused, <laughs> but then I'm like, oh my gosh, she's right. Like that word had a lot of judgment or that statement had a lot of judgment that isn't helpful for me. And I think our kids do that as well with anxiety and OCD. And I think as parents, even as therapists, sometimes we might miss that. So how can parents spot th- that lack of self-compassion? The lack of self-compassion for the child, just to clarify. Yeah. Like when they're having a hard time, how do we, how can we tell that they're having an issue with self-love as cheesy as that may sound, or, you know, having some grace for themselves? Yeah. I don't know if this will exactly answer it, but I hope in a roundabout way, maybe it will. So I actually will think of like, cause I do see a lot of adults, obviously, whenever they're talking, I'll ask them if, especially if they are a parent, like, Is that something you would ever say to your child, right? Or another person that you really love? And so even hearing from the child, maybe a statement that you wouldn't say to the child themselves can be a good indicator. And honestly, I would think if if you aren't seeing change from the child, like say there is a behavior that is a little bit more problematic and you're not seeing that change, you know, checking in with the child, like, hey, what's, what's going on? How are you talking to yourself? That can be really influential on, on change and maybe even being transparent. Like I know, you know, for myself, right. If, if you are transparent with your child, like we think that being hard is going to help us change. But like I mentioned earlier, that's really not the best environment for change. Yeah. And I think it goes both ways, right? Like when we are hard on ourselves, whether we're a parent or we are a child or whether we are hard on our child as a parent, both are not motivating. I actually have a lot of stories in my podcast that actually happened to us this is just totally like an example, but not related. We were on vacation last week and we were in Minnesota. We were like in the, the boundary waters. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's like way out in the middle of nowhere. It's like on the boundary of Cal, like we could see Canada on the other side. So there was kayaking. And so I was like, I don't know if my kids with anxiety and OCD are going to be into kayaking. There were a lot of bugs. It was like, there was a lot, there was leeches in the lake. There was a lot going on in that place. And so my son has anxiety and OCD. He went kayaking. So did my daughter, but my son wanted, and he's 11. So he wanted to go way out in this lake, which was huge. So I'm like, okay, you know, it seems so relaxing. I thought we were like trapped in the call map. It was like the birds were like chirping and it was sunny and it was gorgeous. And he was like, I want to get to Canada. And so I'm like, all right, well, Canada's on the other side. And it can be like deceiving. It can seem like it's right there, but it's not. I don't know if you've ever been kayaking, but <laughs> it's deceiving. So we get to Canada, what we thought was Canada. And we're with like 
my brother-in-law, thankfully, you know, who kind of is like an outdoorsy person. And he's like, it's not Canada. I think we have to go farther because we saw like American flags. So we start going back and he goes way ahead of us and he leaves us. And then we're in the middle of this lake, probably halfway there. And my son is just like, I can't go on. And I was like, crap, <laughs> like, what am I going to do? You can't like row a, a kayak. You can't do anything. And so he started getting anxious and he started having like a panic attack. And I thought he was, he gets angry when he's anxious. I thought he was going to throw like his oar. And I'm like, do not throw your oar. And so my first reaction was to motivate him by getting angry. And so I'm shouting at him, like, you have to do this. We are stuck. I can't pull you. And I'm like yelling at him and he's starting to cry. And like, I had this like epiphany, like, if we want to get out of this, I'm going to have to motivate him. <laughs> you know, like, And I like, I totally had to like switch gears and have self-compassion. Well, not self-compassion. I'd have compassion for him. And so I switched and he was like, you've gotten so far. And like, I'm so impressed with how brave you are. And, and then he'd paddle like one foot and then I'd have to like not go ahead of him so that he never felt like I was leaving him. And it took probably about two hours, but I feel like that's almost like a metaphor for what you're talking about. It was like, he would not have gotten to the end of the lake. And then I could have framed it like, wow, that was terrible. I'm never going to do that again. And instead, even though that's kind of how I felt, you know, instead, mm-hmm. like, that was amazing. That was such a brave moment. It showed you that you can get through anything. I try to use it as a metaphor for life for him, but it shows you that pushing our kids and being like, you have to do this, or, you know, you're not going to be able to go to school. You're not gonna be able to drive. You're not gonna be able to go to college. How are you going to function? It doesn't motivate. Um, and that was kind of a literal example of that, a tangent, but you know, a literal example of that. Yeah, no, I love that story. I feel like stories can really help us conceptualize things. But yeah, I think you did have self-compassion in that moment because you realized that for yourself, like getting angry wasn't necessarily what you wanted to portray in that moment. So I think that that does require self-compassion and to be compassionate to others. That's what the research also shows is that there's a higher rate of burnout, for example, for therapists who don't have true self-compassion for themselves because they're consistently holding space for others. And I think being a parent is, is very similar. So I think that that's really cool. And similarly related to what you were saying, and maybe a little bit off topic, but it's interesting for moms in particular, or women in particular, it shows like, if you look at the research and self-compassion is that the most admirable trait for a woman is to be agreeable. And so, you know, I think that that says a lot as far as how it can be really difficult for us to be compassionate and set those boundaries for ourselves. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, that might be a little bit off topic, but kind of triggered. I think it's interesting. And we did talk about that with like kind of Dr. Shafali, like setting limits, setting boundaries Mm -hmm. and that, that being self-compassion, you know, that I don't have to be everything and anything. And in those moments when we lose our cool, you know, I could have easily have turned around and beat myself up for that and said, Mm -hmm. you know, gosh, you know, you're here trying to have a nice vacation. You're trying to like, you know, help your kids grieve and like give them space. And then you freak out in the middle of a lake. Like what's wrong with you? You call yourself a therapist. Like I could go down that rabbit hole really easily, but it doesn't help, you know? And so I think, I think so many parents that listen to this podcast or that are part of the AT parenting community, like fall into that where they become paralyzed because they are not compassionate enough for themselves. And also they overextend themselves, which is going back to kind of what you're talking about Mm -hmm. um, is that they say yes to everybody because they think they have to. And so they put their kids first without really taking a pause and saying, whoa, I'm overloaded. 
I need to have a day out, you know, I need to check out for an hour or I need to like put some headphones on and it's okay if I'm tuning my kids out for a minute. Cause I need to like reset. And mm-hmm. that's about compassion. Cause you're right. You can't be compassionate from an empty tank. It just doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. And for those that are listening, we did do like two podcasts. I don't know what episodes they are. I can't look it up <laughs> <right> now, <laughs> but not last week, but the week before and the week before that on self-compassion. I think it was, we did one on compassion fatigue and that's, that's just a real life thing that happens. So I think you're bringing up a good point, which is start with yourself. Mm-hmm. You really can't be compassionate. You can't really instill compassion in your child if you aren't compassionate to yourself. Yeah. I think it's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we could even say like that initial like inclination of like anger is you know, it inform it was self-compassion. It was a bit misguided in the moment, but it was your way of trying to keep the situation safe. And so, yeah, I think it's great that you were, didn't go down that rabbit hole in a sense, because yeah, you are human. And I, and I think of any, any sort of response that any of us as humans don't like that we did was a way to attempt to protect ourselves from something that was scary, but it was just, again, it was a little bit misguided. Yeah. And and we can connect those dots for our kids too, you know, that, that that's really fear talking a lot of times, maybe fear of the intrusive thoughts they're having or fear that their, their peers are going ahead of them, that they're like falling behind in some areas and tapping into what that negative self-talk is about. I think all too often we talk about kind of boosting our child's self-esteem. We talk about like very like I think cheesy, trite, like ways to do it, you know, like let's give them a worksheet and let's talk about all the good things that you're great about. And I think sometimes as parents, we, we feel like we can fill them up, you know, I'll just tell them like, they're wonderful. They're so brave, but if it's not coming from themselves, I just feel like it's not, it doesn't stick. So how can we help kids generate their own positive self-talk? practice, I guess, what is the first word that comes to my mind, just in that moment, like whether you're doing it with them, or they're starting to learn from you to like interrupt that negative self-talk. And then I, again, I, I think it's so much of like a combination of being tender, but also being fierce and action oriented with it. Cause I think a lot of times self-compassion gets misconstrued to this Oh, I'm going to be so like lax and, and just, I'm not never going to do my homework or or whatever it is like that is not self-compassion at all. So even like for them to have that dialogue in their head on like what self-compassion is, it is like, yes, like this was a really difficult situation that I went through, but also this is what needs to be done differently. Right. So it's a combination of that tenderness, but then action. Yeah. Yeah. I think so true. And there's a couple of things that I'm thinking of as you're talking too. like, I have a very weird parenting approach, which is probably like counterintuitive. So like when my, especially my daughter, cause she tends to be the one that is more vocal. You know, my son will like, he'll go like hurt himself. Like he'll pinch himself or he'll do some sort of self-harm, which is somewhat of a compulsion, but it's on the sly. So I can't, it's hard for me to address that in the moment. And it's his deal. You know, I, we can talk about that later, but my younger one who's nine, like she will verbalize it. She'll be like, I'm an idiot or whatever. And I think it's, it's a knee jerk reaction for parents to swoop in and say, no, you're not sweetheart. Like you're amazing. Or, um, and I think sometimes kids will also not initially do this because they want warm fuzzies, but it becomes Pavlovian where I think it's reinforced, where you say something to your child, like, you know, you need to do your homework. And then your child says, I'm an idiot. I can't do it. And then you swoop in and 
and do something that softens whatever it is that you're telling them to do to begin with. And it reinforces that behavior. And if you're yelling at them and then they say, I hate myself, I'm an idiot. And then you're like thrown off and then you get the warm fuzzies out that naturally feels good. And it teaches kids, I think A plus B equals C. And so it's hard because what are you supposed to do in those moments? And with my daughter, and it won't work for every kid, but if she says, I hate myself or whatever, I'll get fake angry with her. And I'll say like, stop talking to my daughter that way. Mm. It, it tends to throw her off. Even though I do that a lot, I don't know why it still throws her off. Cause she'll be like, I, <laughs> she'll be like, it'll stop her like her negative spin. And then she'll be like, that doesn't make any sense, mom. I am your daughter. And I'm like, exactly. And you stop talking to her like that, you know? Mm. And so I think sometimes like, again, like you said, like highlighting it, but then also if we swoop in and give them the warm fuzzies for them, it's not going to be intrinsic. They're not going to develop that. Mm. And so it's just going into, if you hate, and this is what I always say to my kids, but it can seem kind of harsh. I'll always say, you know, if you hate yourself, then no one's going to like you because Mm -hmm. self-love starts with yourself. And so when you hate yourself, you're setting the stage for everybody else around you to treat you horribly because that's how you're treating yourself. And I'm sure like to a nine-year-old, they're like, what is she talking about? No, you're planting the seeds. I think it's great. I think another great phrase, not to, I feel like I kind of interrupted you a little bit, but would you ever talk to your friend like that? Right. Would you say that to your friend or do you feel motivated after you say that? Does that put you in a place where you, where you actually do want to do your homework, you know, framing it that way. So then, yeah, you know, they're able to maybe conjure up some of that insight. Yeah. And I love that. Like, do you talk to your friends that way? And I think going further and saying, does that motivate you? Because even in the grief therapy, not to go on about that, but she, she says that she'll say, is that like, you know, we get into like the spiritual, like soul expanding stuff. She'll be like, is that soul expanding? Is that a soul expanding thought? And I'll be like, no, it's really not. You know, Like when I put it like that, I'm like, how is that thought serving me? It's not, it's really dragging me back down. And so I think, I think sometimes we think we can't teach our kids these things because they're too deep or they're, they're too complicated. And I feel like that's not true. You can start planting these seeds very early on. I mean, with my daughter, I would say stuff like that to her when she was like four and five. Now she gets it, but I think you can start planting those seeds. I think that's important. Yeah. I think it's even more important to plant it early. And I think it's great that that you are planting it so early because trying to change that all, you know, after 20 something years is going to be a bigger feat for sure. Yeah. They're habits, they're habits that are being developed. So when you have someone in their twenties and, or maybe you listening as an adult have had this habit your entire life of like ripping yourself down, it's going to be harder to break. So I want to switch gears and talk about when people do ERP exposure with response prevention, and they like, you know, quote unquote fail, you know, they have an exposure or something or a challenge. I sometimes I call it a challenge for anxiety and ERP for OCD. How can parents help when when kids or teens feel like bashing themselves when they've tried something and they couldn't go that far or they feel like they failed the exposure? Yeah, the balance again of, you know, that tenderness, right? So acknowledging how that must feel, right? That no one wants to necessarily not succeed. I don't know if that's my favorite word to use in this moment, but we'll use it for all intents and purposes, but um, they didn't succeed, right? So you're acknowledging that that doesn't feel very good, right? No one really likes that feeling, but then also accepting that's 
part of being human. So that is a, a piece of self-compassion is that common humanity that we as humans, we will all feel like we didn't do things to the best of our ability and then problem solving again. So what can we do differently next time? So maybe you do feel more equipped to, to overcome that challenge. Yeah. And I think sometimes parents get one, I think they bite off more than they can chew. And so I think sometimes we have parents who are doing ERP at home who are pushing it, I think, farther because they see like an end goal. So instead of seeing the baby steps to it, they just Mm -hmm. think, well, you know, my child can't, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, you know, my child can't go out to eat or they can't even function. And maybe we're starting with ERP, like, can they eat at home or can they touch this at home? And even when they, they succeed at those smaller exposures, they see like the bigger goal, the end goal. And so to them, it's not enough. And so it's almost like having to like check your own mm-hmm. expectations and your language and how like you're framing those things, I think to your kids. I mean, I'd rather start off smaller and have them feel success, 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 than this huge exposure, which your child didn't sign up for. And I'm talking about people who are doing it at home, you know, maybe independently, that, that can make your child have less compassion for themselves too, which can be tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely see that where the parent, it seems as if they're, you know, five steps ahead of the child. And I think that that can unfortunately be like send a signal to the child that, hey, I'm not doing enough, even though the parent I'm sure is not intending to portray that message. And even as therapists, like I'm sure you feel this way too, like making sure I know I can definitely have a tendency to put the cart before the horse or the horse before the cart, I think is the saying, but making sure you are riding alongside and being that support versus trying to drag. Yeah. Their foot is on the gas. It's not your foot. And it is hard. And I think it's, I think it does start with us as parents or therapists, because I know even with like my son, sorry, I always talk about my kids a lot in my podcast. <laughs> He's got ARFID. And so a lot of restrictive eating and, you know, we're worried about his weight and we don't want to have to like G tube him. You know, it's like a lot of stress. And, and I find that when I cheerlead him on the little victories that he's doing, for example, just a weird example. So we're charting it right now, you know, and so he has to write down what he eats and he has to write like what compulsions he was able to not do and what compulsions he did and what number, you know, I'm like going all clinical on him now because I'm worried. And sometimes something can be perceived as a failure because he's also doing it himself. Cause I'm trying to foster independence and foster ERP independently. And so I'll give you an example. Like today he ate a piece of pizza, which it's weird, but you know, he eats leftovers better and he didn't eat all of it. And so he's charting, you know, and, and he has to throw it out. And I've been teaching him like, take an extra bite. Even if OCD says you're done, then you take an extra bite to say OCD. I'm not done. Like I'll tell you when I'm done. And he was making, you know, he was feeling embarrassed that he like was throwing away maybe like two thirds, not maybe like one third of the pizza. And I could frame that as like, you know, well, better luck next time. Or why couldn't you eat that? You know, couldn't you push yourself harder? You know, and I think it's just how we show up and talk to our kids. That's going to be how they show up and talk to themselves. And I'll say, well, what, what did you do? Right. And he's like, well, I didn't distract myself. I didn't have water. So he like listed all the compulsions he didn't do even though he did do some compulsions and then letting him kind of feel like that's a win, you know, like, wow, you ate a lot of that. And let me feel that that actually does feel really hard. I think you over microwaved it. You know, it's like, it was like solid. It was like a brick, you know, so <laughs> I do feel like, even though if we're feeling anxiety and we're feeling like our child's not making progress, how we talk to them will instill some compassion in themselves or not. Right. It could be the other way around too. 
Yeah, I I love that example. I think it, again, reminds me of that misguided self-compassion as the parent, right? If you were to get really frustrated with that, we could totally understand that. And again, misguided self-compassion because you want you know, your, your son to feel better, but you recognize that we need to approach it from a different stance and, you know, being able to recognize what we do well in situations and maybe what we didn't do so well in situations, I think is always a really good rule of thumb. Cause no matter what, I don't think the goal is perfection. Right. And so being able to point out the things that went well, I think is, is really encouraging. Yeah. I think for, for a lot of us, it, even some therapists, I don't think it comes naturally. So training your brain to, to highlight the positive and then getting your kids to highlight the positive in their own voice. How do we do that? How do we get kids to have like positive self-talk in general? I, I might sound a little bit like a broken record, but I think it's really like pointing out those misconceptions we have about critical self-talk. Like we truly as humans, I think, well, I don't think that's what the research shows. We think that that's going to help us and it's just not. So you think that's definitely the first place to start. Like, hey, this actually isn't so helpful and I want to make changes. And I know that this isn't going to be the most conducive for, for the change I want to make. And then again, I think the perfect way to frame it is what do you say to a friend or a loved one? You know, when we, anytime I ask a member that, they instantly know what the answer is. But if I ask them to reframe what they just said to themselves, they struggle, right? Like, oh, I don't know. And I'm like, well, what would you say to a friend? And then instantly they know what, what to say. Yeah. I love that. I wonder if it would be like one of those things where you can say, now talk to, talk to you, like you're talking to your friend and even do kind of maybe like an experiential exercise like that, you know, like, okay, well, Natasha, you know, you did it and like third person it, you know, mm-hmm. in a positive way. I think sometimes when people talk in third person, it's weird, but <laughs> <laughs> But getting them to do that, to see, even like write a letter if your child's like, you know, journal friendly, I think that would be interesting to get them to write a letter to themselves or even record a message. I mean, we can use a lot of like out of the box thinking. Like I, I use the video a lot, like record yourself. And then when you're having a hard time, listen back to it. And so it's like a video letter to you. I I like your idea of like, if you're having a hard time doing that, pretend you're talking to your friend, see your friend there. Don't see you. And then when they're having a hard time, press play and watch that video. That'd be pretty cool because you're inspiring yourself because we want it to come from you. We don't want it to come from the parent. I think that's where parents also miss the boat is they feel like it's like the ownership's always on them for everything. Like my child's failing in ERP because of me. My child is like, has a disorder because of me. My child hates themselves because of me. You know, so again, going back to that parental self-compassion, but also it's like, I can't make my child love themselves. I just don't have that power, you know, and I feel like right. there's a genetic predisposition for that negative self-talk because I've seen, you know, I, I have three kids and I'm one of four and the parenting was all really similar, but yet you have different self-esteem levels and different self-compassion levels. And I think that comes partly genetically. And so it's like, they have to rewire their brain to talk differently to themselves, which is tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I, and I imagine just unconsciously as a parent, they're watching, right? Even if you're not overtly being not self-compassionate to yourself, I think that there are little incidental things parents are doing that the children are really catching on to and maybe learning that. um, And this is not meant to be like, oh, you know, you're doing it all wrong as the parent, but 
again, it goes back to why it's so important as the parent to model that sort of behavior. Yeah, no, our kids are definitely listening. And I think modeling Mm -hmm. self-compassion, you know, not that you're causing your child to have some negative self-talk, but they do, they like, they see how you treat yourself and Mm -hmm. they're like the best mirror because like, I know I'm doing, I know I'm having a hard time when my kids start to say things that I say that I don't want them to say. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, and they're like, but mom, you say that. And I'm like, uh, that's not good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And And I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as like, it's like some insight to like have a conversation and say, you know what, thanks for pointing that out because I don't want to say that to myself and I don't want you to say that to you. And so how do we both change that? What can we say differently? And I think like getting kids to come up with their own ideas instead of telling them something is going to be so much more powerful. I mean, probably the same thing that you experience in therapy. It's like the therapist can say, think this way, or do this exposure, but you know, like if, a, if the client comes up with their own exposure idea, that's going to be much, much better, right? They're more likely to do it. If you say, what exposure do you want to do? And they're like, well, I want to do this. That's going to work a lot better than you being like, okay, you're going to go home. You're going to do five exposures. These are what they're going to look like. Good luck with that. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing with like that, that inner dialogue is if you tell them, you know, you need to tell yourself, blah, blah, blah. Or I think you're mm-hmm. beautiful. And I think you're so brave it just falls on deaf ears. So it's kind of like going back to what you said with the friend analogy. It's like, what can you tell yourself differently? Or that's yeah. not serving you. I like the, the language that you used of like, is that motivating you? No. What language can you say that would motivate you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Those open-ended questions, right? Letting, letting the, the child fill in the blank. Cause you're right. It's, it is so much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like our kids with anxiety and OCD really struggle more than the average child around this because Mm -hmm. they have so many more obstacles. So celebrating is a good thing. Do you have any ideas on how people can celebrate successes? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. You kind of touched on it earlier, but those small, those small wins I, I see all the time in therapy and I'm sure you do too. And with your children, it's, it's never satisfied, right? Any sort of anxiety disorder, it's never enough. And so, yeah, I definitely personify the anxiety a little bit. So yeah, anxiety maybe isn't satisfied, but what, what do I feel about the situation? Am I proud that I was, you know, able to eat a little bit of that pizza or do whatever the, the exposure was or whatever it may be. So celebrating the small wins as much as, as much as you can. And then also recognizing the goal is not perfection, nor is the goal that, the trajectory is only in the downward trend trend as far as symptoms, right? So approaching each day with a new mindset, like every day is going to be a little bit different. And just because one day feels a little bit more difficult, doesn't mean that all your progress is down the drain. I mean, I see that all the time. And I think that can be really detrimental to progress. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think people, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's like one bad day and you're going to have bad days. And I like the way you keep saying like perfectionism isn't really the goal. It's impossible to be perfect. And so letting kids know that and letting you know as a parent that they're building a muscle. And sometimes, you know, you have a bad day in the gym and you can't lift all those weights because you're not feeling it. That doesn't mean that you're not gonna be able to lift those weights the next day or that you aren't building muscle to eventually lift those weights. It's a process. So I think, yeah, perspective is, is so important. I like a wind board too on a practical level. One of the AT parenting community members a long, long time ago, like made a wind board and 
she got like a whiteboard and she just wrote like every day, like something that her child did that was like a win. And I love that. And I think something visual like that and getting your child to do it. So again, it goes back to like us not force feeding, you know, like, woohoo, I'm your best cheerleader. Cause kids will say like, well, you're my mom. Of course you're going to say that, but have the child identified, even if it seems forced or fake writing those things down. I remember so I had a win board. I don't have one anymore. And I was writing for my two little ones and I wasn't getting them to write it. So I'm doing the opposite of what I actually just said. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, I can't remember, like my daughter, or maybe she did write it. She wrote something about like, so she has like a P is a contamination thing for my nine-year-old. And she wrote something like, I touched this kid's name who she deems as like contaminated. So she wrote that on the board. And it was funny because then my 17-year-old, like the next day I saw a handwriting that I didn't think was like my two little ones. And it was like, I ate a hamburger. And I was like, who wrote that? And then my 17 year old, she wasn't 17 at the time. She was 16. I was like, she's like, I wrote it. I'm like, don't write on the wind board. Like that's for wins. It's for anxiety and OCD. And she's like, mom, I think hamburgers are like, you know, they're not, they're not cooked well enough and I can't eat them. (laughs) It was a total, like, you know, she's got anxiety issues too. And so she's like, she wanted to get in on the win. Like she wanted to be recognized and write her win on there. And it was like a legitimate win. So I think we don't recognize that, you know, the whole family wants to, to celebrate their successes and having a visual, like a way to actually do that. If your family's into that could be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think across the board as humans, we're not the most compassionate regardless of, of who we are. And even just recognizing like, as far as like the perfectionistic piece is that even being self-compassionate doesn't have to be perfect either. I think you know, there are going to be times where we're not nice to ourselves as long as we're making sure we're not letting it go down that spiral and recognizing that the mind is wired to notice the negative, right? We think of caveman times, we have to notice the lion, we do not need to notice the flower, but just making sure that we recognize that this is not life-threatening things that we're, we're beating ourselves up over. And so, yeah, just even being self-compassionate in the midst of trying to learn how to be self-compassionate can be helpful too. I love that because how often do people listen to episodes like this or themes like this and they think, oh my gosh, I'm doing it all wrong. Okay. Now I'm like, I'm not self-compassion enough or I'm not like not teaching my child self-compassion. And it's so true. I think that we can beat ourselves up about everything and living in the moment, you know, staying every, and I like the way you keep saying like, just focus on like today and like tomorrow's another day. And that's kind of been my mantra in the last like five months is just today. So like, just today, like just today, I can try to be self-compassionate or just today, you know, blah, blah, blah. And tomorrow's a new day. And so we just start all over again. And I, I think it's a good way to end this episode because I think it's being compassionate about even building self-compassion, which, you know, mm-hmm. it's like mirror inside of a mirror inside of a mirror. That's what it's about. It's just about living every day authentically and genuinely and giving yourself some wiggle room to, to be imperfect because you are and giving your child wiggle room to be imperfect because they are and building these skills one step at a time. So I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on and talking about this. I know it was, it was really nice to, to talk and hear a little bit about who you are. And I must say that was like the fastest 40 minutes of my life, probably <laughs> well, one of them. <laughs> yeah. So um, people can learn more about NoCD by going to treatmyocd.com. I have links in the show notes and you can get virtual therapy and, you know, talk to a therapist like you or like the, the ones that you're advising and get your kids help, even if you don't have access to a local therapist in your area. 
which is fantastic. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Check out NoCD. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please feel free to hit a star on iTunes or Google Play Stitcher and leave a review. And I appreciate that as well. And I hope that you guys find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you guys again next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com.